this sermon will be great, really great, the likes of which the world has never heard before. Not. Rhetoric is so pervasive. There are so many trying to be persuasive, but much is shallow, if not plain false. I want to take a moment of pastoral privilege just to say how broken my heart is by the tragedy in Charlottesville, Virginia. I suspect you share some of that same concern for the difficulty and the violence and all that has gone on there. I just have to say that I don't see it quite as some might, that there is hatred and bigotry on many sides. When there is hatred and bigotry and racial intolerance, that is evil. I don't care how you try to slice it or paint it. And as a person of faith, I have to say that, that my convictions say that we cannot live in a world or a country where it's acceptable to allow racial intolerance to spread and be said to be okay. Um, We may have different viewpoints about things, but we have to understand that we are all children of God. As a person of faith, I truly believe that. Well, there are many different denominations, hundreds of different denominations and slices of people within Christianity, and Each tradition has a way of authorizing people for ministry to do the kind of work that I do as an ordained ministry in the United Church of Christ. And we have certain protocols and educational standards that have to be met. And then before one is ordained, you have to go through what's called an ecclesiastical council. And that's where you're interviewed and asked lots of questions. Well, some traditions don't have quite as – some traditions have more – protocol and hoops to jump through than we do, but some have much less. And one of those denominations that doesn't have a lot of criteria, but just some, had a person who was being interviewed without a lot of background and education, but felt called to the ministry. And so as he was being interviewed, the committee asked him to tell a little bit about his understanding of the Bible. And here's what he said. Once there was this man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thorns. And the thorns sprung up and choked him. And he went, and he didn't have any money. And the queen of Sheba, she gave him a thousand talents of gold and a hundred changes of raiment. And he got into a chariot and drove furiously. And when he was driving under a big juniper tree, his hair caught on a limb of that tree, and he hung there for many days. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink, and he ate 5,000 loaves of bread and two fishes. One night, when he was hanging there asleep, his wife, Delilah, came along and cut off his hair, and he dropped and fell on stony ground. But he got up and went on, and it began to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he himself hid in a cave, and he lived on locusts and wild honey. After supper, he went on and came on down to Jericho. And when he got there, he looked up and saw old Queen Jezebel sitting down away up high in a window, and she laughed at him, and he said, throw her down out of there. And they threw her down 
70 times 7. And of the fragments that remained, they picked up 12 baskets full, besides women and children, and they said, blessed are the peacemakers. Now whose wife do you think she will be at the judgment day? Perhaps you've heard of a preacher who, although not quite as confused, made little sense and said very little of import with all of his or her rhetoric. Hopefully it wasn't one of your preachers, although there have been times in my life when I've been almost that confused. But haven't you heard people, and they don't have to be preachers, who give a lot of lip service to God and yet say very little with their lives. They're all fluff and blow and no show. Verse 46 of our Lucan text says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? In this day and age, we're inundated with communication. And to the average person, words are cheap. See if you can catch the rhetoric of these words spoken by Holden Caulfield in J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. This may take you back a few years. In the first place, I'm sort of an atheist. I like Jesus and all, but I don't care too much for most of the other stuff in the Bible. Take the disciples, for instance. They annoy the hell out of me, if you want to know the truth. They were all right after Jesus was dead and all, but while he was alive, they were about as much use to him as a hole in the head. Now, at first glance, that statement doesn't seem so bad. He thinks Jesus is okay, and he likes the disciples after the resurrection, though before that they were real clods. Yet he doesn't claim that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he misses the point entirely that the disciples' struggle is our struggle to figure out who Jesus really is and what it means to follow him imperfections and all. You see, there are many words and questions that seem to say and ask a lot, but never really get to the heart of the matter. I've said before that there are two different kinds of questions. There are curious questions and crucial questions. A curious question might be, did Jesus actually walk on water? And for some strange reason, that question gets equated with the question of, Was Jesus really who he said he was? The answer to the one doesn't really make all that much difference in the way we live our lives. The answer to the other does. So it seems that when we try to make curious questions, crucial questions, we avoid the deeper realities of life. The things that take place on the surface of life are often the things which catch our eye but deafen our ears. For as columnist Sid Harris once wrote, when we see most clearly what we should be and do, that momentary glimpse is so painful that we voluntarily blind ourselves. And this blinding is what we call reality. And that's precisely what happened to the chief priests and the elders. Here again, our lesson from Matthew. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I will ask you a question, 
And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you what authority I do these things. Now, the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from people? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from people, we're afraid that the mul- of the multitude, for they all believed that he was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. These verses may well be the direct consequence of the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus upset the tables and drove out the money changers, he had defied the authority of the established religious order. And so when asked by what authority he was doing these things, Jesus could have easily answered by saying, God called me to do these things. But he didn't. Instead, he used a common Jewish custom of teaching by answering a question with a question. And I'm reminded of Samuel Johnson and James Boswell of English literary fame. They were very good friends. Boswell had a habit that rather annoyed Johnson, and one day he confronted him on it. Bozzy, as Johnson affectionately called him, he said, Why do you always answer my questions with a question of your own? And Boswell responded, Do I now? (laughs) Unlike Boswell, Jesus was not evading the question. The issue was whether the revelation of John and Jesus was true or whether the only legitimate truth of God came solely through recognized and established teachers, the status quo. Well, our text tells us that Jesus' opponents were unwilling to accept the challenge. They didn't want to have public discussion about Jesus' authority. And so Jesus refused to deal any further with them. It was as though he rejected their authority to examine him. It sort of reminds you of Jesus before Pilate, when it was Pilate who was really on trial. And in this conversation with the chief priests and elders then, Jesus was moving from rhetoric to reality. From rhetoric to reality. You see, Christ was concerned with reality and with nothing else, but there are always people who cannot rise to that level. So wrote the theologian Elton Trueblood. Some people are as concerned with perception of reality as they are reality. That is going on in our society, and we're buying into it, that somehow perception is as important as reality. And in verse 28 and following, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. And he went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Now, which of the two did the will of the father? And they answered, the first. These verses, in conjunction with our Lucan lesson, give us three clear clues of the reality that Christ was concerned with. The first is hearing or listening. Hearing. Jesus says in Luke 6, 47 and 49, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them 
I will show you what he's like. He's like a person building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. And you know the other side of the story with no foundation. So the first clue is just listening. It seems so easy, but it's so hard. In the parable of the two sons, it is implicitly understood that they must first listen. They must hear what the father says and not just hear what he says, but hear what he's asking. They take it seriously. And finally, after hearing it, as if he heard it again as the tape played over in his mind, the first son, he let what his father said sink in. He really got it. He heard it. And when we really hear what God is saying to us, and sometimes it's hard to hear with all the rhetoric swirling in the world around us, we will most likely be led to our second clue, and that is repentance. That's what the first son did. He repented. Now, repentance is a hard thing for us self-sufficient mainline Protestants to think about. We associate it with groveling and kneeling in the pits, ashes and sackcloth. But in its most basic and literal sense, repenting means turning toward God no matter where you've been. That may mean more for some than others. The first son, you'll recall, at the beginning, he didn't do, he didn't want to do what his father asked. But upon really hearing, he repented. In other words, he didn't want to go in that direction. But after hearing it, he turned to the will of his father. And that's what repenting is. Turning, returning toward God. A church billboard once had the traditional phrase, repent and be saved. And then following it were these words, if you've already repented, please disregard this note. I don't know about you, but I continually have to keep returning, returning to God. My experience in the scriptures tell me that salvation is not a once and for all thing, rather It is an ongoing process that we have to keep returning to God. Life is not a circular returning. That would be, well, that would be frustrating if it were simply a circular returning. It's what I would describe as a spiraling returning. And thus the turning, each time we return, We deepen. Much as a screw upon turning and turning and returning is both deepened and strengthened. So the next time you screw up or mess up or sin, don't get all hung up about it. Simply turn toward God and the deepening will happen. And so it is that a well-built house on a deep foundation can stand amidst all the floods and troubles which life brings. Listening, truly listening, leads to repenting or returning, returning to God. 
and that leads to obeying. These are traditional words, listening, repenting, obeying, but it simply means to hear and to get what God is saying, to turn toward God, and to do what God is asking us to do. That's really it. And thus it is that the Swiss psychiatrist Paul Tournier could say, Christ calls us to repentance so that forgiven and set free, we can throw ourselves into action and bring forth fruit as he himself asks. After repenting, the first son obeyed. He went to the vineyard and he did the work of his father. We've only looked at the first son this morning for our three clues and not the second. Suffice it to say in the words of a common saying, the smallest good deed is better than the grandest intention. Rhetoric or fluff can often prevent hearing, repenting, and obeying. Jesus showed us what reality is all about. His obedience was displayed by hearing God. Loving God's word, turning fully, he opened himself fully to that sense of God's call in his life, and he did it. He obeyed. And the word obedience comes from the Latin word to listen. To listen. Obedience, then, as embodied in Christ, is a total listening, a total getting it, a giving attention to all at all times, to what God is saying and then doing God's will. The great medical missionary Albert Schweitzer has said, everyone must work to live, but the purpose of life is to serve and to show compassion and the will to help others. Obedience, then, is to serve God and others. Hearing, repenting, and obeying. From rhetoric to reality, all the fluff and stuff around us, from rhetoric to reality, it starts with hearing and listening to God's call, which leads to repenting, to a returning toward God, which leads to obeying and doing God's will. Beginning, mean, and end, God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, my words can only point to Christ's reality. It is only Christ who can move us from rhetoric to reality. So I want to close with these pointing, adapted words of the anonymous poet. Jesus shut within a book isn't worth a passing look. Jesus prisoned in a creed is a fruitless Lord indeed. But Jesus' reality for all is to hear, repent, and obey God's call. From rhetoric to reality. Let's live it. Let's live it.